we are studying the parables of Jesus. And last Sunday we examined the parable of the returning king, or the parable of the Minas, as it's generally known. Today we're looking at the parable of the talents. And there's much that is similar in these two parables, and yet there are significant differences. Just to review something we saw when we looked at Luke's version versus Matthew's version of the parable of the great banquet, we need to consider the the nature of the ministry of Jesus. Do we imagine that he spoke a parable once and only once, and that somehow Matthew got it more correctly than Luke did, or vice versa? Jesus was a traveling teacher, and I believe that he spoke various parables on more than one occasion. in different contexts, depending on who was listening. And so what we studied last week, the parable of the returning king or of the Minas, was spoken in Jericho as Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem um, before his passion. The parable of the talents, which we will look at today, is actually spoken only a few days before his death. In fact, as Matthew has arranged his gospel This is the second to the last public speech that Jesus gives. The last one, which is also in Matthew 25, is the parable of the sheep and the goats. So this is at the very end of Jesus' public ministry. And just to review a bit, a reminder about parables. The purpose of parables is to change behavior and to create disciples. But you need to ask yourself, what is the best way to change somebody's behavior? What is the best way to make someone a disciple of Jesus Christ? I think we have one of two options. The first is we tell them what to do. We say, this is what a disciple of Jesus Christ does. This is how you're supposed to live. The other way is to say, this is who God is. And this is what his rule is like, the kingdom of God. Most people, I think, when they read the parables they tend to look at the first. They see the parables as a set of instructions uh, for disciples to tell them, this is how you're supposed to live as a Christian. I'm convinced that this is not what Jesus did. That what Jesus sought to do in both his teaching and in his living was to tell people, to demonstrate to people who God is and what the rule of God looks like. This is what I've argued in this series. And I believe that the parable that we will look at today is the supreme example. This is example par excellence. That in fact, it is not, the parables are not to tell us about us, what we should do. They are in fact telling us about God. Um, Listen and follow along as I read this parable. It's one of the longer ones, beginning in verse number 14 of Matthew 25. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with two talents gained two more. But the one who had received the one talent went and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. 
Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have even what he has will be taken from him. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We'll begin by looking at the context. And we need to go back to verse number one to to find the context for this. Because if you look at verse number one, we read, At that time the kingdom of heaven will be like. And then Jesus tells the parable of the ten virgins. And now in verse number 14, again, it will be like. The it is the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Okay. In both verses, Jesus is saying that something will be like, you know, that the kingdom of heaven will be like, and it will be like this. That's the immediate or the, yeah, the immediate context. A broader context requires that we go back to the previous chapters. In chapter 24, Jesus spoke of the coming destruction of the temple, which came after chapter 23, in which Jesus pronounced seven woes on the religious teachers or teachers of the law and the Pharisees. In chapter 22, Jesus is questioned in the temple grounds by the religious leaders about paying taxes to Caesar, about marriage at the resurrection, what is the greatest commandment. And then he asks himself, or he himself asks a question, whose son is the Messiah? All of this happens after chapter 21. Chapter 21 is Palm Sunday. When Jesus comes into Jerusalem, this is the last week of his life before he is put to death. Jesus is coming to the very end of his earthly ministry before his death. And he spoke this parable. The parable is a story told of a man who's going on a journey. He calls in his servants and he entrusts his property to them. This is found in his entrusting them talents. What is a talent? Well, it's interesting that the English word talent actually is derived from this parable. Uh, in Greek, it's talanta, and so it's been transliterate, transliterated into English as talent. It began to be used commonly in English about the 15th century, so it's a fairly uh, new word in, in English. Um, it is a monetary weight of between 60 and 90 pounds, which is a great variation, but it depends on the time and also the place where the talent was used. Depending on the metal in question, whether it was gold or silver or something else, the value of a talent was the equivalent of 6,000 denarii or 6,000 days of pay, uh, days wages. So, when you break it down, it equals 20 years of one's wages. 
So if you take what a person earns in 20 years, that's what one talent is equal to. So he gives to one five, to another servant he gives two, and to the third he gives one. And we are told that these are given according to their ability, each according to his ability. So we would assume that the one who had five had a greater ability than the one who had only one. I shouldn't say only one, I'll explain in a bit. And then he leaves on the journey. Now, three specific things come into play in this parable. First of all, what I would want you to see is that no specific instructions are given. Unlike what we saw with the parable of the Minas in which he's, the servants are told, put this money to work. No instructions are given. He simply entrusts his property. Here, this is mine. You take care of it. You take care of this. You take care of this. Okay. Secondly, each servant had a different level of ability. And then thirdly, there would be an accounting. I want us to consider these in reverse order. That there would be an accounting seems clear in that what is entrusted to the servant does not belong to the servant. Now, if the master had said, okay, this is yours, I'm giving this to you, this is yours, then there would, I mean, if you give somebody something, then it's theirs to do with as they please. If you entrust it to their keeping, then there is an implied assumption that, in fact, one day you will say, okay, what have you done with what I have entrusted to you? The fact that each servant had different abilities or different levels of ability seems clear in that they're not all given the same amount. Unlike the parable of the Minas, which we saw last week, where everyone is given one, here some have different levels of ability and skill than do others. And yet, we must be clear about something, that what is entrusted even to the one with one is really significant. So we should take care, I need to be careful not to say only one talent, because if somebody says to you, okay, I'm entrusting to you one talent, and you're like, well, it's only one, well, that's 20 years of pay. That's not insignificant. Okay. Now, this guy might have gotten five times more, but what you got, in fact, was fairly significant. And then, the thing that strikes me the most, I think, about this parable is that no instructions are given. Unlike what we saw in Luke 19, put this money to work until I come back, there are no instructions given here at all. And so the question comes up, how are they supposed to know what to do? And in fact, why is what the one servant did by burying it and putting it in the ground, why is that so wicked? Why is that so bad? If you don't give me instructions, how am I supposed to know what to do? I believe the answer, surprisingly enough, is in fact found in the third servant, in his response. We'll come to that in a bit. As we've read, after a long time, the master returns and he settles accounts with them. And so the one who has five talents says, Master, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. The servant who had been given two talents said, Master, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. And then there is the famous third servant. Master, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. What is the failure of this third servant? Why is he, such a, why is he the bad guy in this story? He 
his problem, what he did wrong, was he had a wrong view of the master. And this wrong view of the master informed his behavior. It guided him to act in a particular way because he saw the master as a bad guy, someone who took what wasn't his. He's like, I should, in fact, bury this in the ground. As we saw last week, this, in fact, is ridiculous because if you know this man is a hard man, you better work like mad to make sure you do something with this because, after all, he you say he's a hard man. You, know, you better do something. But because he had a twisted view of the master, it led him to act in an inappropriate way. From this, I take it that the two servants, the first two servants, acted as they did because they had a correct view of the master. Because they knew him for who he was, this guided their behavior. This is what informed their behavior, and so that's why they did what they did. We touched on this in a series some years ago, and I thought I'd come back to it a bit, a series on guidance. And one of the books that I found very helpful was a book by James Petty called Step by Step. And he gives a parable, if you wish, to illustrate the various views of guidance. Suppose that you have some fairly wealthy friends and they decided that they're going to go on safari to Africa and they've asked you to house it and you've agreed to do so. And you say, well, you know, while I'm house sitting, why don't I do some landscaping work around the property? You've got this huge property um, and I think it needs some work. I'll house it and I'll do some landscaping. And they agree. They think this is a great idea. They, they want you to do this. So you arrive at the house on the day that they are supposed to leave. And to your horror, you discover that they've already left. You discover a note that thanks you in advance for all the work you're going to do, for the project you're going to complete. But it says nothing about what they want you to do. You've offered to landscape, but they don't say anything about what they want and where they want it. And you have no way to contact them. So what should you do? Well, you have at least three alternatives. The first is to try to guess what they might want by using clues that are left around the house and somehow piece together what you think they might like. The second is to simply sit there and wait until they call and not do anything because you don't want to do the wrong thing. So you're just going to wait for them to call or send you an email or do something, send you a text, and then you'll know what to do. Or the third is you can sit down and think about the people who own this house. Their preferences, their style, and then develop a plan that reflects these things. Petty argues, and I agree with him, that it is this third alternative that is a biblical view of guidance. The first two, I think, are more in line with what I will call a traditional Christian view that I think is incorrect. We learn in this third servant's excuse that he acted based on his knowledge of the master, not based on specific instructions. No instructions are given. The master does not say, you have five talents and I want you to go out and earn five more. He doesn't say the two, I want you to earn two more. He doesn't give any instructions. He simply entrusts it to their care. Um, 
In the same way, to use Petty's parable, a person left to landscape the couple's property should consider who they are. As a house sitter, you would have access to their library, if you wish, their books, their pictures, their magazines. And your work of landscaping would reflect what you believe they would like. It reflects your knowledge of them. This is who you know them to be, and therefore this is how you do the work. In the same way, our decisions, our choices, our goals should reflect our understanding of who God is, as he has revealed himself in Scripture. I find it instructive, I find it fascinating that if you look at earlier Christian writers who write about guidance, that's prior to the modern age, they do not write about guidance from God. They write about guidance to God. In the modern age, it seems that all the literature is about how to discover God's will for your life. That is, getting guidance from God. What should I do, God? The earlier church said, no, we need to be guided to God, who God is, and come to know him. The modern church has unfortunately given out bad information, which I will call the traditional view. It's a view that I think is widely accepted in Christian circles. And it starts out okay. It starts out with the right assumptions, that God cares about you and the details of your life. We would agree with that. That God offers a strategy on how to make decisions in our lives. I would not disagree with that. But then it goes off track because somehow it argues that there's a fundamental belief that there's the right way to do things, the moral way to do things, if you wish. And that's sort of a big circle. And if it's like a, a target, if you wish. In archery, you've got the outer rings and you come closer and closer. And right in the center, the bull's eye is what is known as God's perfect will for your life. And somehow you are supposed to decipher, you're supposed to discover what it is that God wants you to do. This will is invisible to us, but that somehow we're trying to figure out what it is that God wants us to do. And if we follow this map to God's perfect will, then we will have success. I think, by the way, this is why most people seek guidance from God, because they want success. It's not that they want anything about or for God. They want success. And so they want God to somehow be their, I don't know what the expression is, their, their backup, the one who will help them achieve maximum success. This view teaches that God expects you to figure this out as you go through life. Um, it's not necessarily from scripture, but it, it tends to be, have to do more with signs um, from our environment, from our inner state of mind from outward circumstances. So internally we might have certain feelings or promptings, a sense of something or a sense of peace about a decision. Um, we might have dreams telling us what to do. Uh, Bible verses might come to mind. Or externally there might be opportunities, open doors, uh, circumstances, possibilities, or extraordinary coincidences. We're like, ah, that's God's perfect will for me. That's what I should be doing. In this system, the Christian life is simply becomes searching for a message from God. Trying to interpret and decode signs that we think are coming from him. And then reading our internal and external world for evidences of God's intentions for the future, what God wants us to do. 
The bottom line in this traditional view is that God has made a decision. And you have to try to figure out what it is that God has decided. Um, I just want to point out, in, in, in line with this parable, that not only does the master not give instructions to the servants, we are not told how the first two servants doubled the money. So apparently there wasn't just one way to take five talents and make it ten, or to take two and make it four. There may have been many ways, and we're not told what they were. The master did not tell them, and we are not told how they did this. Let's go back to this traditional view, which has real problems. You know, God's made a decision. You have to somehow try to read the mind of God. Dick Kies, who's, who's spoken and written about this, um, has listed five problems, and I think it's quite helpful um, in challenging the, the bad tradition, but also to help us understand this parable. The first problem that uh, Dick Kies points out is that this does not seem to be what the Bible teaches or describes in the lives of God's people. There is no teaching in the Bible on how to read the mind of God. There is no emphasis on the secret will of God. That somehow if we are sensitive enough, if we try hard enough, we will know the will of God for our lives. In fact, there are at least two examples I can think of that flatly contradict this view. There are, first of all, there are people who say, um, I didn't make this decision because I had no peace about it. And there are others who say, I, I made this decision and I had peace about it and so I went with it. We are told in Scripture about one person in Scripture who made a decision and had peace about the decision he had made. One person. And you know who that person was? Jonah. God told him, go to Nineveh. He disobeyed God, ran away, got on a ship, and fell asleep in the bottom of the ship. He was at peace. He was at peace. He deliberately disobeyed a direct order from God, and he was at peace. Uh, so much for being at peace. Then others have said that we should point to opportunities, that if there is an open door, this means you should go through it. But we are told in Second Corinthians that Paul went to Troas to preach the gospel. He found that God had opened a door for him, but Paul did not go through it because he was concerned about Timothy. This indicates to me that an open door, an opportunity, is not in fact necessarily a sign from God, this, this is what you should do. As some have pointed out, that trying to decipher the will of God, what God wants for the future, is mentioned in the Bible and it is called by various names. Divination, sorcery, and witchcraft. All of these are forbidden. In the Old Testament, they are capital crimes. These reveal a lack of trust in God, who is Lord over all, including human history. The second problem with this view, Dickeyes points out, is that if there is an ideal will of God for your life, which will bring about the most fruit, the most blessing, the most success, what happens when we miss it? And we could miss it and never know it, since it is, after all, the secret will of God. How do we get back on track? Um, we have to admit on some level, it would be impossible to get on track. Supposing you chose the wrong college, or the wrong career, or the wrong spouse, 
or the wrong way to raise your children. Um, so then the question comes up, does God have a second best will for your life? He has the perfect will, and is there like the not-so-perfect will? You know, sort of a second best. Some would say yes. And then I would ask, well, then what about the third best, or the fourth best, or the fifth best? I think if we would be honest, we are way past God's nth best for us before we even get out of bed in the morning. So to somehow shoot for this perfect will of God, uh, the secret will of God, I think... Um, is folly. The Bible tells us that we are broken people who live in a broken world. A world where a righteous man falls seven times, but he gets back up again. This is in Proverbs 24. Our hope is to be in God's grace, that God will make something beautiful out of our wreckage. We make decisions, and it is God's grace that makes them something beautiful. The third problem with this view is that, in fact, it seems to distract us from having a deeper understanding of what the Bible actually teaches. And so instead of focusing on God's revelation of himself in Scripture, we're so busy trying to look for signs and decode the signs, whether internally or externally, as to what we should do with our lives. The traditional view does not emphasize the depth of moral and spiritual growth. It doesn't talk about growing. It talks about decoding and deciphering and being introspective and being sensitive. The fourth problem with this is that, in fact, it is a hungering to go back to the Old Testament days when God gave direct guidance. Wouldn't it be great if we could be back in Old Testament days? So Gideon in Judges 7 with the fleece, he wanted to know if, in fact, God had spoken to him. Uh, He wanted confirmation. And then... Uh, the high priest wore two stones, the Urim and the Thummim, uh, which this was a way they would ask God a question, and we're not sure how this worked, but one stone indicated a positive answer and the other one indicated a negative answer. Um, what I find interesting, when this is recorded in Scripture, almost every time the answer is positive, which to me indicates that the people asking the question had done their homework. We think this is what we should do. Okay, They didn't just say, we don't know what to do. It's sort of a lie detector test, a yes or a no. Okay, It's not an essay answer, it's a yes or no. God, should we do this? Yes, or should we not do this? And they'd done their homework, and invariably God answers, yes, this in fact is what you should do. But, in the Old Testament, God made the decision and his people followed. In the New Testament, God's people are expected to make the decisions themselves. I would argue that the Old Testament time is a time of preparation. It is a time of immaturity. And with the coming of Jesus into the world, it is time for God's people to become mature and to make decisions. One last thing. The fifth problem with this traditional view is that it invites doubt and unbelief in the lives of those who have trouble doing it. One may pray for a sign and then look and look and look and never get a sign. One may pray harder for a sign and continue to look, only to be met with silence. Dick Kais mentioned that there are those who have left the Christian faith because there was an absence of a response from God. Only cold silence as they perceived it to their pleadings. They were pleading to God, God, tell me what to do. But that, in fact, is not how things work.
because God failed to connect them with them in a way that they expected him to, they walked away from the faith. There's something else, if we could add, there's a sixth problem with this. And that is, if we put it all on God, if we are looking for God to guide us, um, what happens when things don't work out? What if we say, God, what should I do? And you have a sense that God said, okay, do this and you do this. And then it just, it just blows up. Whose fault is it? Well, in many ways, we like this because we absolve ourselves of responsibility. It's not my fault. It's what God told me to do. Um, The reality is God has given us talents, the parable. He has given us opportunities. He has given us time. We are to honor his desire to use these resources for his purposes. We are to make decisions. And we are to make decisions knowing, in fact, that we may make wrong decisions. We should be bold. We should be confident. This should mark our decision making. Not because we're infallible. Not because we have godlike knowledge. Not because God has sort of let us peek behind the curtain to see what's going on in the future. Not because we are so great that we know how to make the right decisions, but because we are convinced that we are under God's protection. The world for a Christian decision maker is a very different place from what the non-Christian perceives. Because we know that God is there. Petty used this. He said, the world is a safe place for Christians to make decisions because of the guardrail of God's providence. It's protecting what should be protected. works all things for our good. That is transforming us into the image of Christ. I'm reminded of the garden that is outside. And Guy and I have talked over the years that neither one of us has a green thumb, as the expression goes. We don't have apparently that natural ability to make things grow. But one of the things that Gia found liberating was when she gave herself permission to kill plants. That is, to make decisions that may end up with dead plants. That's okay. If you're only seeking to make the right decision, and of course we want to make the right decision, but if you think, I've got to be so careful that everything's got to be right because if I make a bad decision, it's the end of the world. No. A wise man falls down seven times. A righteous man falls down seven times and he gets back up. We will make mistakes. The parable, as long as it is, is still very thin. We don't know what the man with five talents did. It is possible that he experienced some reversals. We shouldn't just automatically say that he had five and it became ten. He had to work to do that. And maybe he made some bad decisions along the way. But he kept working at it, as opposed to the third servant who simply buried it in the ground. One of the things that strikes me in, in preparing, or struck me in preparing for the sermon, is that seeking guidance from God does not necessarily require a relationship with God. Think about that a moment. When we want God to guide us, we don't necessarily want 
to hang out with him. We don't necessarily want to know about him. We don't necessarily want to know him. We simply want him to tell us what to do. Now, the past two months, Guy and I have traveled quite a bit. We've been visiting the various uh, Spanish missions in Central and Northern California. Um, and we've gotten lost on more than one occasion, and resulting in me stopping and asking somebody for, for directions. And I got directions. When I asked for directions, I didn't try to develop a relationship. Like, hey, let's sit down and talk, get to know each other, and then you can tell me where such and such is. No. You know, where is this street? And they'll tell you, and then you go. And the same way, I think people look to God as someone to give them direction, but eh, that, that's it. You know, let's not make this personal. <laughs> no type of relationship. We just simply want you to tell us what to do. We see God, if we're not careful, as the giver of guidance and little more. But if it is true, as we see in this parable, that there is very little specific instruction, then we are to learn, we are to get to know who he is in order to know what we should do. And this requires a relationship. Years ago, over 60 years ago, J.B. Phillips wrote a book entitled, Your God is Too Small. And among the chapter titles reflecting people's view of God are The Resident Policeman, Parental Hangover, Grand Old Man, Managing Director, Perennial Grievance, God in a Box. Do you think how you view God will affect how you make decisions? And what decisions you will make? It does in this parable. It absolutely does. There are a couple of matters I want to touch on before I bring this to a close. Um, they're not the primary focus of the sermon or of the parable itself. At least two things. First of all, something that appears in this parable and in Luke 19 as well. If you look at verses 28 and 29. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten. For whoever has will be given more. They will have an abundance and whoever does not have even what they have will be taken from them. As I said last week, this, this smacks of the rich getting richer. And, and this is very disturbing. But stop a minute. The talents were not given to the servants. They were entrusted to the servants. It doesn't belong to the servant. And if you have a guy who had ten or five and made it ten, wouldn't it make sense? Okay, I'm going to take this away from you because you're obviously not doing anything with it. You have one and you did nothing with it. Let's see, who should I give it to? Who should I entrust it to? Well, to the person who, who doubled it, who went from five to ten, I will entrust it to him and to his keeping. It's not a question of, oh, this seems grossly unfair. He already has ten. He does not own or possess ten. He is entrusted with ten. And the second thing is the matter of giving account and the results of one's actions. In this parable, we hear twice, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. With the first two servants hear this. The third one hears, throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
judgment is not an attractive topic, and if possible, one that we would choose to avoid. But if we, in fact, ignore it, or de-emphasize it, we ignore moral responsibility. And as a result, our lives are cheapened. See, if my decisions, if there are no consequences, if my life, if I don't have to give an account for it, then my life has no meaning. It has no purpose. It has no worth. It is because my decisions have significance, and they will one day be judged, they have, they have true significance. Otherwise, we're just sort of spinning our wheels and it amounts to nothing. In this parable, we should see the place of moral responsibility and the possibility of judgment. There are two expressions here. He is to be cast into outer darkness. This points to that which is there's, it's separation from everything that is good. Light is good. Darkness is bad. Into outer darkness, you are separated from everything that is good, specifically from God. You are separated from the presence of God. The weeping and gnashing of teeth is an Old Testament expression. It's only found seven times in the New Testament, five times after parables, at the end of parables. It points to extreme sorrow and emotion, but it also expresses rage. And I think that this is what is at play here. In Psalm 35, like the ungodly, they maliciously mocked, they gnashed their teeth at me. Here there's not sorrow, there's anger, there's rage. In Job 16, God assails me and tears me in his anger and gnashes his teeth at me. A frightful thought that God is so angry, so enraged at you that he gnashes his teeth at you. What this says to me, and I don't want to read too much into it, is that even after judgment, even after this judgment, the servant still had a wrong view of the master. The fact is, the master was gracious. He shared his possessions. He entrusted his life, his property, to his servants. And then he says to the two servants, come and share in your master's joy and happiness. This is not an awful man. But to the one servant who failed to do anything, who saw the, the master as a terrible guy, in the outer darkness, he still sees him as a terrible guy. Gnashes his teeth. That awful master. Look at what he's done to me. In Matthew 25, we find the last public teachings of Jesus in the form of three parables. The, parables of the, the parable of the ten virgins, the parable of the talents, the parable of the sheep and the goats. The third parable, the king judges the sheep and the goats. The sheep are commended for their actions toward him. Feeding, giving something to drink, inviting him in, clothing him, nursing him in his sickness, and visiting him in prison. The goats are condemned for their failure in their actions toward him. And in both cases, they ask, when did you come across our path? When did we act or fail to act towards you? I think what we find in that parable is what we find in this parable, and that is people acting in the light of who God is. Because they believe God to be a God of grace, then they in fact are gracious themselves toward others. 
because they recognize what God has given them, they in turn want to give to others. On the other hand, if you think that everything you have is something you've earned yourself, and it's, it's yours and God had nothing to do with it, then why would you share it with anybody else? It's mine. But because those who are known as the sheep saw that what they had was from the grace of God, they in turn gave to others. One last thing. When I was in Bible school, we were never taught this. Um, but I heard it, and I've heard it since then. You know, in Bible college, people were preparing for ministry, and they weren't sure where they were going to go to, you know, to be in ministry. Would they be a music director, youth director, pastor, or a missionary? But somehow the word got around, don't ever say, don't ever say, I don't want to do this. Don't ever say, I, I would never be a missionary to Africa. Because you know what? That's where God will send you. What a sad view of God. You think God is up there and he's like, ooh, work. how can I make their lives miserable? There were, in fact, cases where people had said, I don't want to do this, and they ended up doing it. I don't think the issue there is the character of God. I think it's the character of the individual, that God was able to change their heart. The reward of the first two servants is come and share your master's happiness. If you think he's a terrible guy, then this is not someone you want to hang out with, is it? But because you see him as a gracious person, when he says, well done, good and faithful servant, come and share my happiness, you're like, yes. This is a God of grace. Someone whose happiness I want to share. On the other hand, if you think God is going to send you to Africa because that's where you don't want to go, is that someone you want to hang out with? Is that someone you want to spend eternity with? God made us. God knows us. And he wants us to come to know him. And in coming to know him, we begin to have a sense of what he wants us to do. It's like the couple that went on safari. What should I do? Should I sit here and wait until I get a message from them? Or should I look around? Should I get to know these people through their house? And then, then I'm like, oh, this I think is what they would like. This is who I believe these people to be. Will we make mistakes? Probably. We're not perfect. That's fine. We are protected by God's providence. All things work together for good. But we cannot be frozen or paralyzed into not doing anything because we're waiting for a sign. I, there may be times when God gives signs. I, I don't want to make it black and white, but I think what God wants is for us to come to know him and to love him and say, well, wait a minute, this is who God made me to be. This is where God put me. Hmm, I wonder what I should be doing, and then go from there. This parable is not primarily about us, about the servants. It's about the master. And because the two servants knew who he was, they correctly knew who he was, they did as they should. And the third servant was absolutely wrong. And so he did nothing. He did nothing. 
God has revealed himself in scripture. How do you make someone a child of God? How do you make someone a disciple of Jesus Christ? Do you tell them what to do? Or do you tell them who God is? And what God's rule is like? I think it's the second. And I think that's what Jesus does in the parables. Let's pray together. Father, in our fallenness, we we want things to be about us. We want you to sort of be a support system for us, to give us directions and instructions. And I think you have to a certain degree in your word. But as to making decisions, we are to do this. But do it in the light of who we know you to be. And our knowledge of you is incomplete. It's faulty at best. But we can make decisions knowing that you're there to catch us. Things may not always go well. That's fine. It's not the end of the world. You call us to get to know you, who you are. Even as we read the Psalms, we're reminded of who you are. The one who is high and holy and yet lives with those who are contrite. I thank you for this parable. May your spirit bring it to our minds in the coming days. May we think on it and meditate on it. I thank you that we could gather this day to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand, please? And we'll sing the doxology together.